Hello and welcome to Student Affairs Live, the online learning community for student affairs educators. I am your host, Heather Shea. My pronouns are she, her, and hers, and I'm thrilled to be back broadcasting live from the campus of Michigan State University, where I serve as the Director of Women's Student Services in the Division of Student Affairs. On today's live broadcast, we are discussing the office, I mean, the Ombuds office, and we are in, and how we in Student Affairs can partner with folks who work in the Ombuds offices um, for the overall benefit of students. This episode of Student Affairs Live is a part of the Higher Ed Live Network. All of our episodes offer you direct access to the best and brightest minds in education. Be a part of our discussion today by tweeting at the hashtag Higher Ed Live. And thank you again to my amazing graduate assistant, Gabby Walla, who is tweeting alongside and monitoring today's uh, back channel. If you have questions for any of our panelists, you can send a tweet and we will do our best to incorporate them into today's discussion. Today's live broadcast is powered by Platform Q, Education's Conduit Online Engagement Platform. And we are using enrollment using um, platformq.edu.com. All of our episodes are recorded. They're free and easy to access in the video archives at higheredlive.com, or you can take Higher Ed Live with you on the go by subscribing to the podcast. Higher Ed Live is produced by M. Stoner, a digital-first agency committed to tailored solutions that drive real results. All right, now on with today's show. So today we are talking about an important and unique and yet often misunderstood position on college and university campuses. Ombudspersons have re been referred to as the conscience of the university and work with their campus communities to resolve conflict through identifying systemic issues and trends while focusing on fair treatment. These campus officials are also important partners with student affairs, and I'm thrilled to be joined by three people who serve as university ombuds today. So let's meet our panelists. Dr. Shannon Lynn Burton is the ombuds person here at Michigan State University, and it was over coffee in my new role as Director of Women's Student Services that this episode came to be. Thanks so much for joining us and for pitching this topic today, Shannon. Um, also joining us are Dr. D.A. Graham, the ombuds person at the University of Kansas, and Dr. Jennifer Schneider, the student ombuds at the University of South Florida. Welcome to all of you. Before we get to more personal introductions, um, let's begin by defining what we mean by an ombuds. Um, Shannon, can you give us a broad overview? What is the etymology of this rather odd word? What is an ombuds? Where did the concept come from? And what is the history of this office in higher ed? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Heather. Um, the term ombudsman is actually a Swedish term, and it's there where the concept initially began in the 1700s. The term means representative, and in those early years, it was an individual charged with addressing malfeasance and misconduct of government officials. Um, from Sweden, the concept migrated to other parts of Scandinavia and to the United States in the early 1900s. Um, in the earliest of the 1900s, there were some attempts to create ombuds offices in different branches of government here in the States, but the concept didn't really catch on here until the 1960s. Um, some of these earlier ombuds offices in the Scandinavian countries were what we call classical ombuds. Um, so true to U.S. ingenuity, because we always have to do our own thing, we established a new branch of ombuds work in our colleges and universities defined as organizational ombuds. Um, and while classical ombuds, advocate ombuds, another kind of branch of the ombuds tree, 
and organizational ombuds are all rooted in the same history, our standards of practice differ slightly given our particular contexts. So that begs the question, how did ombuds emerge on our campuses? As some might know, there were a lot of changes happening at our colleges and universities in the 60s. We had campus unrest, the civil rights movement, um, the changing relationship between students and universities, and the move towards the concept of multiversity. However, the real event that began the ombuds movement, if you will, was the Dixon versus the Alabama State Board of Education decision, whereby it was determined students could not be expelled without due process. Um, while the decision established the need for due process for our students, many institutions needed a precipitating event to start acting on, on this decision. And so I think for each one of us here talking today, that precipitating event is a little bit different. For instance, at Michigan State University, which is the longest continuing, continuously operating ombuds office at any college or university in the country, um, that precipitating event was a lawsuit filed by a graduate student against the university claiming that the university had violated his right to free speech. Um, the decision for that case cited Dixon and the university developed what was called the Academic Freedom Report in response, which outlined student rights as well as the ombuds role as the guardian of these rights. Many other institutions began to follow suit and many even expanded the role to include due process for faculty and staff. Super interesting. I didn't realize that about MSU's um, founding. So that's super interesting. I, you know, I think what's interesting is how each of you became this role. Um, so could we talk a little bit about your pathway to becoming your university's ombudsperson? Um, what's your background and why did you uh, seek out this role? Uh, DA, why don't we start with you? Thank you for being here today. No, thank you, Heather, for the opportunity. This is um, really cool. Um, for me, I didn't seek out this role. And let me start by saying my pronouns are he, him, his. Um, so this, this role actually was sort of like Plymouth Rock. It landed on me. Um, I was coming out of the Navy as a Navy chaplain uh, in 2005 and looking for my next opportunity. And as Shannon alluded to, um, a lot of the, the ombuds offices, especially in California, were started by chaplains. Uh, and so it was kind of fitting that uh, San Diego State was my first uh, opportunity to be a student ombuds. Uh, and I appreciate them giving me that chance to prove myself. So that was in, uh, in 2005, 2006. Then later I uh, moved on to Princeton University uh, as the uh, university ombuds there, um, and then um, left higher ed, not, not really, uh, but started my own consulting work, doing ombuds work. And I also, uh, after that, uh, was hired to be the human resources director at the University of the Sciences, did that for about four years. And then I was the vice president for global integrity for Nielsen. Uh, and then landed here in Kansas. A tornado dropped me here. Uh, so uh, <laughs> as you can see, uh, it's a, it's a, you know, I've had various uh, opportunities that have built on my uh, expertise and education uh, to do this work. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, Jennifer, tell us a little bit about how you became the ombuds at South Florida. 
Yeah, you'll learn that uh, there's no real direct path. Um, I actually came into higher ed late. Um, I spent 13 years in the K-12 system um, before I even pursued. I was doing some teaching some courses as an adjunct instructor and really sort of got turned on to to higher education and administration um, through there. So um, I started out in higher ed in some academic advising positions and in um, career services. And in one of those, um, while I was working at, at the University of Central Florida, um, I became friends with, met, met the ombuds there, really became fascinated with the work and, and the idea of an office like this. And so um, I was at that time pursuing a PhD in higher education um, here at the University of South Florida. And um, two of my committee members were senior level administrators at the institution at that time. And so um, I started sort of putting a bug in their ear about the ombuds office and what a great resource it is. I and mean, we have about 50,000 students at USF. And so really seemed like it would be um, would be a valuable resource for our students here. And it took some time, but a couple of years after I earned my um, PhD, I was forwarded the, the job description. Um, I think our accrediting body suggested that we uh, that USF open an independent ombuds office to address concerns of students. And so we were able to, um, I was able to apply for it that way. So yeah, very past for sure. Great. I think Great. we were think having we were some having initial um, complicated uh, technology issues. So hopefully people are now joining us. I'm seeing audience um, now working. Do you all, are you all seeing that as well? Yes, okay. Um, I think there was some problems on the LP side, which I don't know exactly what that means, but we're, we're working through it. Uh, so thank you to all of you who are hopefully now joining us um, to Student Affairs Live today. We're talking about the position of the ombuds on campus and um, interesting hearing everybody's pathways. Um, Shannon, do you wanna tell us a little bit about yours? Sure, absolutely. Um, again, my name is Shannon Lynn Burton and I'm the ombuds at Michigan State University. I use she, her, hers pronouns. Um, my path to becoming an ombuds, somewhat like DA and Jennifer, is it's somewhat circuitous, right? Um, this was not a role I entered graduate school thinking I would do after graduation. Um, with that said, I've had experiences in many different places within higher ed and student affairs, from working with international students, fraternity and sorority life to student veterans. Um, I was exposed to different disciplinary cultures and working with graduate and undergraduate students in academic advising. And I've taught both undergraduate and graduate courses as adjunct faculty. Um, I also did a stint in admissions as well as the research integrity office. Um, however, for the bulk of my career, I was an academic advisor. And while I was pursuing my graduate education, I always thought that was where I was going to be. Um, but as I was finishing my PhD in 2012, I was looking for that next great adventure. And our ombuds office here had a posting for an assistant ombuds person. Um, I was drawn to the role because of my interest in student success and social justice. I saw it as a place that could integrate these passions in a really unique way. Um, I believe I was chosen for this role because of my knowledge of the university structure, its policies and procedures, as well as my ability to relate to and understand students. 
Those are good. Uh, those are good pathways as well. And I think I, I share your background at the same at the exact same higher ed program. So <laughs> it's interesting how um, those pathways can diverge and reconnect. Um, so one of the things that I think I've heard from your stories is that each of you have slightly different roles on your campuses, and some of you have more specific roles with students, others have more broad roles. Um, can you talk um, specifically about how you work with divisions of student affairs or with student affairs educators, um, whether they're in the division or not, um, on your respective uh, campuses? Uh, Jennifer, let's start with you. Sure. So I work specifically with students. That's my, um, those are my constituents. And so um, I do work closely with um, student affairs, uh, um, student affairs administrators, specifically in areas where students bring concerns, for example, um, housing and our conduct office. And there are sometimes concerns that that emerge from some of those areas. Many of them are just administrative, just a misunderstanding about process um, or wanting to clarify process or, or reasons for concerns. And so certainly work one-on-one -on -one with them. I am also, I report to our vice president for student success. So at the University of South Florida, we don't have an explicit student affairs division. Um, our, what used to be student affairs um, is in a unit, shares a unit with undergraduate studies. Um, and with our enrollment management units. And so we all report um, to the same vice president. And, um, and so I'm also in meetings with a lot of these people. These are my peers. And so that too has led to just more of a informal relationship where they will sometimes come in and wanna talk through um, organizational change or talk through issues um, surrounding just our organization here at USF. And, and we just got a new president. So things that are happening, um, positive and, and the challenging aspects of the work um, and so certainly have a lot of friends in the unit and am able to, to work and collaborate with them on, on different initiatives. Uh, Shannon and I are both at MSU, so um, we know the Division of Student Affairs is, is created and um, housed differently on every campus. Uh, Shannon, how, how have you worked most closely with student affairs educators or with the division? Yeah, sure. So I think my lens is a little different because I report to the president of the university. And so like Jennifer and um, working through all of the changes that having a new president at an institution brings. Um, but as for partnering with student affairs, much of that work is done in an advisory capacity. The focus of our work is the fair treatment of students. And that's the lens that our office brings to any discussion that we have with student affairs. Um, currently, I said ex officio with voice and no vote on committees related to student affairs. So this includes the University Committee on Student Affairs, um, a work group looking at fraternity and sorority life, um, the Relationship Violence and Sexual Misconduct Expert Advisory Group, as well as the Dean of Students Advisory Board. Um, we also have some other ex officio capacities throughout the institution, one of which is the All-University Traffic and Transportation Committee, not student affairs related, but that's the one that I always find is unique to our history. Um, and we also <laughs> partner with our student governments in presentations, talking about student rights, as well as multiple units across campus in helping not just students, but faculty and staff to develop um, their skills related to conflict resolution. Um, transportation include parking, I think. Yes. Is that part of it? Yes. yes. <laughs> the perennial issue on every campus. Um, DA, tell us a little bit about your ro role with student affairs. 
Yeah, here at KU, we don't call it parking. We call hunting. That's what we call it. Uh, <laughs> it's always hard to find a parking space. Um, so our role here at the university, so uh, we are considered university ombuds, and so we handle faculty, staff, and student concerns, uh, graduate and undergraduate. Um, so we um, work with a lot of partners in student affairs um, to help students resolve concerns um, around grades. And so one of the one of our new partners here at uh, KU's uh, particular office called Jayhawk SOS. Um, and so this office is basically set up to handle anything that students are wrestling with um, from uh, grade appeals to uh, financial problems to housing or anything in the, I'm gonna use an old term, the bursar's office. Uh, I just aged myself. Um, <laughs> and so it's an opportunity for us to partner with those folks um, to, because their role is to help students around any of those issues. And usually if they can't resolve those issues where it is beyond their scope, then our office tends to take that issue up. If the student has done, let's say, a great appeal that's gone to the highest level in uh, the school uh, that the student is attending, then um, our office gets involved when the student says that they have been, haven't been given a fair process. Uh, and so usually the uh, Jayhawk SOS folks will, um, we will work with them to try to see what we can do to help support the student uh, or else to be able to raise the um, the question to folks around whether or not, you know, this student has been treated fairly. Okay. Um, what is a day, a typical day in the life of an ombud? I think, I think anybody could answer this question. Um, but Jennifer, I, I know you have some interesting experiences on your campus with ha how students have have figured out what an ombuds does but let's let's begin with first like what does a typical day look like if there is one yeah i would say there's not a typical day i'm literally never know what's coming in the door so um i have cases i have a, a full-time administrative assistant who sort of manages my calendar um i think i said this i'm one one ombuds for fifty thousand students and so um i stay pretty busy so we normally schedule one hour appointments one-on-one -on -one with students and on my calendar there's just a case number so um i i usually don't know what's coming in and what they're going to bring um and so that makes life interesting um, as shannon sort of alluded to i also spend a lot of time in meetings and and part of that is is positive i've been here in this role for um, almost five years now and so i um, sit on a lot of committees as a non-voting member as on to try to maintain that um, sense of neutrality um, and independence. I don't vote on these committees, but I sit on the Ethics and Integrity Council. Um, that's a presidential advisory council. Um, I sit on our persistence committee, uh, which is a sort of multidisciplinary approach to our um, to, to trying to make sure that our students are successful and that they persist and that they graduate in four years or six years at the most. Um, and I sit on the Graduate Professional Student Success Council. So there are lots of meetings and, and it's nice to, to be invited 
to those and to sit at those tables and to offer perspective and to listen to changes that are happening because they seem to be happening frequently and some of them are really significant and are, are going to affect the students who, who end up coming to visit my office. And, but, uh, but that certainly takes up a lot of time too. And so um, it's usually just a combination between between one-on-one -on -one meetings with students and being on the phone and meeting with administrators and decision makers to try to help students resolve issues. So um, yeah, never a dull moment for sure. Uh, to the second part of your question, my students actually, I think we're gonna try to tweet it. My students, I had a, a grad assistant last year from our college student affairs uh, program, master's program here at USF, um, Angelica, if, if she sees this at any point, um, shout out to Angelica. She um, and an undergraduate student who was helping us in the office created a video because we were really trying to figure out what students do think about our office and what an ombuds is. And we learned that most of them don't know. <laughs> um, and I think even the students who come here sometimes don't know. Someone said, oh, you should go see the ombuds. <laughs> They'll come in and say, I'm here to see the um, uh, uh, the you know, and they don't really even know how to say it or why they're here or what they do. They just know that somebody said, you should go talk to her. Um, and so, yeah, lots of misrepresentations. I would say a lot of them hope that I'll be their attorney, that I'll represent them, that I'll take on the university on their behalf, and, um, and then they'll get their way. Um, others, I think, have a good experience here. We're able to help them resolve some issues, and then they want to keep coming back. Like there's a like maybe more as a counselor, or um, I have two college age students myself um, and a middle schooler, so I'm sure the maternal vibe, we could do a whole nother webcast on how our identities <laughs> shape the work that we do, but I'm quite certain that I give off a maternal vibe and sometimes they'll come and just wanna talk things through about homework. And, and I, um, with 50,000 students, we have to sort of mitigate that and, and provide them with better alternative resources on campus that might be able to provide that, that kind of ongoing support. But, um, but yeah, inter very interesting work and never, never a dull moment, never a boring day. Yeah, I think um, Gabby just just grabbed that link off of our off of our uh, show notes. So if folks are watching live, you can find it. We'll also try to add it to um, the live or to the website uh, for this episode, so folks can watch. Um, yeah, I'm sure. I mean, all the language at, on college and university campuses is a little bit obtuse, right? So you mentioned bursar and registrar and provost, and it's like you need a secret decoder ring sometimes to figure out what is exactly um, the best person to talk to about any of the issues I'm facing. Well, um, I but what I love about... Oh, sorry. Go I think many times ombuds are a, a sort of a last resort, like when visitors have been shuffled around an organization and they've tried to be heard in other places. And so um, when they finally get here, they, they're they not sure what I could possibly do that anybody else hasn't done yet. But, um, but yeah, I think that's probably the same even for, for faculty and staff. Yeah. Yeah, Janet, I know um, I'm sure colleagues even at Michigan State University don't exactly understand what ombuds um, offices do. I, I knew already what you did because I have worked really closely with ombuds at previous institutions, but I'm curious, what do other colleagues at MSU assume your role is? Yeah, so I think that's funny because when I stepped into the role, even I had misconceptions about it, right? I, I often referred to my work in my early years as high conflict academic advising. However, it's really much more than that, right? This is, as, as Jennifer's alluded to, a space where individuals can come and truly be heard when they feel like they've not been listened to in any other part of the institution. Um, 
And I think part of that, too, is that systemic piece, because we're looking for those trends. We're looking for those patterns where fair treatment and equity were not being attended to in the way that they should have been attended to. Um, so a lot of times my colleagues have said, why do you want to sit and listen to complaints all day long? And, and I want to reframe that because it's really not listening to complaints all day long. Um, I it's really attending to the humanity, compassion, and empathy that's in our institutions. And this is the, often the only space where students find that when we're working at such a large institution. Um, and I think, I think Jennifer also alluded to this. I think one of the other big misconceptions um, of our roles is that we have formal decision-making authority. Um, that's not the case. We are an informal office and we are neutral. Um, I think individuals are often surprised when we don't fix a problem for them. So our role is really to present them with some options, not to encourage or discourage anyone from doing anything, but to lay out the groundwork for them. Um, and sometimes when we are trying to give our visitors agency, I think that they struggle because they, like the mom factor, I have that too, Jennifer, where they want me to come in and fix a situation for them. Um, and that's not always the case. So I would say those are some of the misconceptions that I see, see and that I've dealt with here in this space. So, so we've heard a little bit about the parenting piece. Um, DA, do you want to talk a little bit about just broadly what kinds of cases in general you see? And then I want to get into more specific areas um, of how our, our work generally on campuses has become much more regulated and enforced by policy. Um, but what are some of the cases, um, you know, without, of course, ad addressing any, anything that's, that's specifically confidential? Well, you know, specifically, right? So I can't go into any specific yeah. cases, but no, I'm, yeah. I, I am. I appreciate, I appreciate the question. Um, yeah. we, we deal with a lot of academic matters, um, grade disputes, uh, not feeling uh, welcomed in a classroom, gender identity issues, or any social identity issues uh, where students don't believe that professors are honoring uh, their accommodations. Um, also, uh, some of the things around um, services, uh, whether it be, like I said, accommodations or uh, relationships uh, in those courses, um, housing, harassment, financial issues, expulsion, um, you know, discrimination. Um, there's a, is one of my, my provosts asked me one day, and he said, what is it that the ombuds can't hear? And I said, nothing. <laughs> uh, we 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 hear it all. You know, I've I've had students who who have left the university and want to come back. Um, you know, we always hear from parents. Uh, that's the other part as well. We we um, and so having those conversations around, sometimes having to coach parents uh, around their um, their child's behavior or or ways that they can help their student uh, manage situations that are happening. So there's a myriad of things. Anything that happened with young people uh, usually lands in our office in some sort of way. Mm -hmm. and, and it sounds like I know your role also extends to faculty and staff as well. Can you talk a little bit about some of the cases that might involve um, faculty and, and specifically staff? Yeah, so some of the things that... Um, some of the ways that we 
engage if if students believe that they are being you know targeted for plagiarism right or it's that it's unfair that a faculty member uh believes that they've they've been cheating they don't believe that they've cheated or that there are some special circumstances for what happened uh in that course um sometimes you will have um you know, harassment, abuse of students. So there was a particular case I know at UMKC that made the papers where uh, graduate students were being abused by uh, and misused by uh, their PI, the primary investigator. Um, and so um, students come forward with housing concerns uh, and how they're treated, you know, by the staff. Um, I've, I've even had students who walked out of a class uh, and said that we don't want to go back because this faculty member is treating us uh, in a way that is not enriching or in, in, in engaging. Um, and so we've had to help them navigate how to raise that uh, to the levels of the folks who can do something about it. Uh, so it, you, you get a myriad of things around diversity. Like I said, marginalized students coming, um, from microaggressions to, you know, just not feeling like that they are part of uh, the organization. Um, even when it comes to protest and dissent, sometimes um, students don't believe that they're being heard. Uh, this is an opportunity for us to engage faculty at the chair level, at the dean's level, um, and the advisors as well, right? Uh, I had a particular student who was misadvised about graduation and told that she couldn't graduate. And so she stayed at the university for another year, not here at KU, by the way. <laughs> and so she stayed at the university for another year. And it was found out that the, the advisor misadvised her. She could have graduated the year before. And so there are a lot of things that happen around trying to resolve that issue uh, to the satisfaction of all parties involved. And so the ombuds gets involved and tries to be that impartial, neutral person to hear all sides and to see how we can move this student forward and also help the institution um, have better processes and policies. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Are there personnel matters um, that come to your desks related to staff and faculty or mediation between um, staff and supervisors or those types of roles, or is that primarily an HR and it becoming an HR issue? No, we definitely see staff uh, concerns, um, you know, relationships, evaluative relationships, uh, mm -hmm. faculty members not getting along. Um, yeah, there's a there's a myriad of, of, of things around misconduct. So I always say that there's a difference between performance and conduct. Um, mm -hmm. And so we do a lot of facilitated conversations when folks do not have the emotional intelligence to be able to handle conflict uh, within their departments. We know in graduate schools, they these are not the things that they're teaching future faculty members uh, in ways to engage. Um, we have chairs who um, sometimes or not don't have the skill set to manage behaviors. Uh, and so we're doing a lot of coaching, consul cons consultations, uh, trainings, um, 
As a matter of fact, here at KU, we are all, uh, doing working to um, help change how we engage each other through the concept of compassionate communication. Uh, it's also called nonviolent communication. And so we've trained probably now over 2,000 uh, faculty, staff, and students on this language because we want to change the culture of how we're engaging each other. And so my office uh, was given the go-ahead to go to work with our organizational development folks. And as the ombuds, it's really nice to be able to have that because I have no authority or power, which I really mm -hmm. love. Um, you know, and, and some folks would say that the ombuds, you know, does have power and it's our power is through our level of influence, right? Um, being able to have a level of integrity that when we do raise a concern that folks will hear us. Um, and it's important that we recognize that we have that opportunity to help change policy by raising those concerns and being able to uh, help students uh, understand that it is not a, a us against them situation, although mm -hmm. it may feel Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So I know there's times in any position where your personal values might conflict with your role. Um, Jennifer, do you have a, a, a story or can you share about a time when you face this kind of conflict? Um, and it might have to, it might relate to policy as well, but I'm curious about yeah. that. Um, I, I was thinking about this when we, when we were writing these questions, um, the, I think for all of us, probably um, a time when our work sort of challenges our values is when we're called to be neutral, um, when something really feels inequitable or when something really sort of um, challenges our values as individuals and, and having to figure out how to set those aside um, and stay neutral is, is really challenging. And there are, there are um, lots of ombuds conversations. DA can speak to this because um, he was uh, in an exchange recently about our ability as humans to really be neutral. Um, but I did have a, a recently had an experience and I'll have to sort of keep it as general as possible, but we had a grad student here um, who was an international woman um, studying here and came to talk through some issues um, with, with a faculty member um, with whom she was working. And um, boy, it didn't sit well with me, right? And so um, as my, my Western values as a woman in the United States really um, it, it, it frustrated me, um, the, the things that she was saying, and it, it worried me. And I knew that the university would want to know that this was happening. Um, but, but she begged for confidentiality and she kept saying things like, this isn't my place. I need to be, she used the term submissive. I'm the student. Um, that person's the faculty member. Please don't tell anyone. I don't want to report it. And we promised confidentiality, right? So, so what do I do with that? So I actually ended up being able to get around it. And I think this is a nice way that our role specifically is able to sort of get at systemic issues, if that if that were the case. Um, and so I was able to work with our Office of Graduate Studies to look at um, this particular faculty member's history as far as time to graduation with students um, and, and look at male students and female students, um, look at the men and the women and see if there were any um, disparities in, in the progression of students based on gender. Um, and we were able to, to help um, without 
without identifying the student, um, without calling anybody out specifically, and um, without putting that student at risk of being identified. And so um, the university was still able to respond appropriately, but but was able to do so in a way that, that protected her. And so um, while I think we do struggle with our own values, I think that our work allows us to be creative and, and, um, and to be able to work with the university even when, and, and to be able to work around those sort of sticky, uncomfortable situations. So um, yeah, for me, it's the neutrality that sometimes it's hard for me to not want to take aside, especially working with students um, where the power differential is significant and so we say we don't advocate, but at the same time, I sort of have to in order to, to get the student's voice heard. Um, and so that that whole notion of neutrality is a little is a little gray and, and challenging sometimes. Mm -hmm. Heather, can I jump in here for a second? For sure, for sure. So I, I, I totally agree with Jennifer on this. Uh, it is an, it, it's a concept that we're even wrestling with as a, as a profession uh, that you know, as human beings, how neutral can we be? Um, the, 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 the more preferred term is impartial, or as some folks would say, multi-partial, right? Uh, and, I, and I echo Jennifer's reactivity, right? When uh, a student comes in or, or a person comes in or a visitor comes in with a, a concern that resonates with you, uh, whether it be around your social identity or an experience you may have had uh, in a previous life, um, it, it 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 pushes you to want to move the system in a way that the system is not moving itself, and so you're having to. Um, represent yourself and we do say we advocate for fairness in a fair process right that's the way we get around it so that that neutral piece though right and if we're going to advocate for anything we can't be neutral this is why i like the impartial piece because i can be impartial and advocate for fairness and a fair process and i think that's that's where jennifer was was going with that as well Shan, mm -hmm. what about you is that one of the ways that um your values have also come up against um your work in conflict yeah I, I think so and i think um i think similar to jennifer and da I've, I've managed those types of conflicts around my neutrality in similar ways was framing it within that fair treatment if you go back to kind of the history of the ombuds world um, the precursor to our current professional association the university and college ombudsman association they had the same standards of practice but they also had an additional tagline to that which was and above all else seek justice and so I think that's one of those things when we talk about fair treatment that we need to look back as into kind of that purpose of why these offices were originally created and what we were really look to look to address for our institutions and our organizations. So yeah, yeah. Do I want to jump back for a second and um, talk a little bit about increased regulations and federal state policies? Um, you know, I think what's, what's interesting is I think for many campus administrators, their roles have really changed um, substantially. And I know that's ebbed and flowed over time um, as different people have come into office. But would you be able to talk a little bit about how um, the types of cases or maybe the increase in regulation has, has affected your 
work. Um, like I'm thinking specifically around Title IX and other issues that offices like the Dean of Students, for example, are increasingly dealing with um, issues related to. Sure, yeah. Um, so this is one of the concerns, right? Whenever the general counsel's office or human resources, uh, uh, at least on the employment side, uh, gets involved, is, is concerned about the ombuds, right? Whether or not this neutrality piece uh, is going to, and confidentiality, right, is going to keep things swept under the rug, right, when, when people raise concerns to you. So I think, so one of the things that we see and, and we purport on our page and in, in all of our documents is that we are not an office of notice. Uh, so we are, uh, we and we are not mandatory reporters uh, in, in our institutions for some of us. I know some folks are, are, are they have to be. Uh, and so that could present a problem, right? And, and, and so what we've seen, I've seen more visitors when the, res when, when the respondent comes forward and say, I've been accused of a Title IX violation. I don't believe that the institution has any supports for me. They have them all for the complainant. Uh, I, I have nowhere to go and no one to talk to. Uh, and so someone pointed you in my direction. A lot of times they, they have already attained uh, attorneys, right, and different things like that uh, in order to protect themselves. And so I think that was a part of it. If you look at the the, the letter that came out from uh, the Department of Education, uh, Betsy DeVos and her folks saying that we need to be more um, um, cognizant, right, of the respondents uh, to these particular uh, violations as well. We need to have more systems in place, more policies that protects both the respondent and the complainant. And so, and in, in as an ombuds, we have an opportunity to, um, you know, address these concerns. One of the things for me as an ombuds, and I'm going to get out of the way here, is sometimes we're asked to mediate uh, a situation that was a Title IX issue. Right. We're asked to mediate if both parties are willing to do that. And sometimes it could be an uncomfortable space to find yourself. And, you know, I'd be interested to, to hear how, you know, what Shannon or Jennifer, how they, you know, feel about those sort of things since they deal with a lot more students than I do. Well, I think one of the things that I, I was going to talk about. Oh, sorry, Heather. We keep talking over you, Shannon. <laughs> Okay. Um, I think one of the things that that kind of raises a question probably for individuals that aren't familiar with this role is, well, how can they not be mandated reporters? And so when you look at the guidance, how that guidance is worded and how we practice according to our standards of practice is not a match. So by the definitions of a responsible employee and by the definition of a campus safety authority, because we have no formal decision-making authority, um, we're really in that space where we have no power to act when a report is brought to us. And so that's um, part of the reasoning why many of us are, have been able to, to keep confidential in Title IX spaces as well, is because of those standards of practice. Um, like DA, I certainly see both complainants and respondents in the process for different reasons. Um, 
complainants are usually coming to me because they want to explore what the reporting process looks like before they engage with it, right? It gives some agency and some control of the process back to that complainant, when in other spaces it may have been taken away from them. Um, for respondents, it kind of goes back to those original pieces of us attending to the due process of students as they move through our systems and our disciplinary processes. So that's kind of the piece that I would add to what DA has covered. Excellent. Jennifer? Yeah, I, I agree with all that. I think that's certainly the capacity in which students um, come to visit my office. I also had an issue where there was a Title IX case um, it was adjudicated, it was over, um, but both students were still on campus. So the outcome there, um, there wasn't enough evidence to, to suspend anybody, to remove anybody. Um, and so the no contact order had been lifted. And, and so the question then was, now what? And so we had some administrators and faculty members who were um, making suggestions about how the students should proceed, but we have to be careful that there are no the, the hearing was over, right? And so there are no more sanctions. We can't we can't restrict access. And so I'm really working with the students, both of them, and with the um, administrators to be able to um, to be able to figure out the what next when students who are who are engaged in a Title IX process um, when that's over and how they how they move forward from there, especially in smaller programs where it's hard to to just avoid each other, um, and working with administration there also. Um, so yeah, my office also is, I, I'm not a mandated reporter. None of my staff um, members are mandated reporters and we're fortunate in that. I know that there are many institutions where that's not the case, but. So one of the things I think you all have talked a lot about is um, neutrality or you know maybe inability to be neutral. Um, and there's other specific standards that the association, the International Ombuds Association, um, puts forth. Um, and one of the other pieces that you also have spoken about is that you have the ear of highest level administrators. Um, so balancing both those standards and of practice as well as your ability to influence change um, through relationships and through connections um, at those tables where decisions are being made. I think that's really interesting. And in our in our prep call, we were talking about kind of the, the concept of serving at the pleasure of um, not being a part of the role and also this concept of speaking truth to power. And both of those really resonate. Um, with me or make me think a little bit about kind of how do you how do you balance that um i don't know we we are not running super short on time but i'd love to hear what your thoughts are all of your thoughts are on how you um how do you how do you do that effectively uh da do you want to start <clears throat> you had to this is a tough one yeah um yeah. we so the ombuds is really seen, uh, especially like to each other, right? Amongst each other, we're seen as these wonderful, loving people who don't want any conflict to happen. We want everything to be great. Um, but we are people who, and I, I love what Shannon brought forward, is that justice, right, was a part of our mandate, right? Um, and... A lot of us still carry that. A lot of us still carry that as a part of our process that we would like to see justice done. I don't, for me, uh, not having 
serving at the pleasure of, it gives me, I, I feel more comfortable being able to be honest with my colleagues uh, who are in the highest levels of administration. I think the other part of that is, it's the kind of, you need to create relationships where people can be able to hear you. Um, and not that you're always going to them when something's wrong, but you're showing up when something's right as well. Uh, and I think that allows them for you to be able to speak that truth uh, and to connect with them in ways that they never even imagined themselves. So that's what I found is that we've been able to, um, by creating those influential relationships, uh, speaking that truth comes across a lot easier, right? That spoonful of sugar makes the medicine mm -hmm. go down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the challenges of all of our of all of our jobs is that we're, we exist within organizational hierarchies, um, you know, with with centers of power and tables where decisions are made. Um, yeah. I'm going to I'm going to move now to kind of projections of the future and perhaps there's folks who are watching today who might be interested in this as a as a potential future career path um if they're sitting in a class in a graduate um program so to kind of combine um and wrap up as our last question you know what do you see as the future of this profession and if people are considering this what kinds of experiences should they um, be thinking about and um, trying to uh, foster right now in order to prepare for that eventual future um jennifer do you want to do you want to start us off Sure. Um, yeah, so I think my sense is that the ombuds profession um, is certainly growing quickly um, and we're still trying to define and standardize and clarify what it means to be an organizational ombuds. Shannon talked at the beginning about the different types of ombuds that there are, but but even just within, within the arm of, of the organizational ombuds, what that looks like, I think that in the future we'll see some more sort of concrete standardization. These are, these are things that you'll need to have. I imagine we'll see degree programs or um, at least certificate programs um, specific right. to this. Um, I, I think to answer that for anyone who's listening, we have several um, student affairs professionals who have come and asked me, what can I do? What do I need to do to be an ombuds? And um, I think right now it's the sort of softer aspects of the work um, becoming trustworthy. Student affairs is a small community, um, even around the country. It's still, it's, it's a small, small world and world and, and word travels fast um, among the community. And so I think being known as someone who's trustworthy, because as DA suggested, that's really critical to build those relationships. And so that whenever you do make a phone call and want to talk through an issue that nobody feels like they're getting in trouble or they don't feel defensive, but we can just work through it in a really honest, authentic way. Um, and so being being, being known is, is simply, this sounds silly, but being a good human, being easy to work with, being able to think creatively about problems. Um, I think there are trainings, certainly, that that you that uh, an aspiring ombuds could look into. IOA has a foundations course. There's also a new webinar, I think, coming out with IOA that's for um, people who, for, for younger, um, I mean, professionally younger um, people who are interested in the work. Um, lots of resources online of just kind of learning what it means, but but certainly formalized trainings and um, 
there's a emerging ombuds network eon is it, that's not ioa specific but there's they meet um i think by social media by slack um there there are lots of opportunities to start engaging i would also say just like with any student affairs um any functional area that you might be interested in in student affairs in the same way i'm setting up informational interviews with ombuds and just learning how they got to where they are and and asking for suggestions but it's um but I think primarily within your organization now, be the good human, right? Be the trustworthy person who can listen without thinking about how they're gonna respond and, and who can work with just about everybody on campus and, and problem solve creatively. Great. Jennifer, do you have any thoughts on kind of the future of the profession as well as pathways for folks who might be interested? You mean Shannon? Oh, sorry. I met Shannon. Did I say Jennifer? <laughs> fine. Sorry. So I think one of the things that we're saying, as like with the social movements of the 1960s um, that originally established the role here in, in the United States, there's a resurgence kind of of an interest of the role in response to the Me Too movement. Um, again, one of the major reasons for this is the informality and confidentiality of our offices, um, which gives agency back to complainants. But when we're seeing this expansion, one of the spaces we're seeing this expansion right now is in the professional research associations um, and specifically to address issues related to harassment and discrimination, but even expanding to address the more professional codes of conduct within the different disciplines um, that higher education is associated with. Um, I had the pleasure to serve as the one of the co-ombuds for the American Educational Research Association this last year. So that was taking my skills and applying it in a slightly different organizational context, but still attending to those standards of practice. Um, I also often, as we're talking to individuals that are thinking about maybe entering this space, I often talk about my work um, as being on an axis, right? The horizontal, horizontal axis being that of dealing with the um, relational and power dynamics between individuals as well as those conflict resolution skills and strategies. And then I talk about the vertical access being the kind of understanding of the system and the processes and procedures of the institution. Um, and so I think ombuds kind of need to have skill sets in both places in terms of understanding kind of how we see the humanity in one another, but also how we understand the bureaucracy and how we can help other individuals navigate that. Awesome. DA, thoughts um, on the future? Well, <clears throat> this is, a, this is a, a very good question. I think for us as a profession, uh, we're going to have to go the way of, I, I believe, psychology when they created the DSM, um, yeah. right? We need to have standardized ways of, if we all see a patient a visitor who is exhibiting a particular, um, uh, not symptoms, but presenting uh, different indicators, then if we're all looking at it, we all can't come up with different uh, ways of uh, prescribing uh, uh, to, to deal with that. So if, you know, that, and that's what happened in psychology. So they had to, um, you know, come up with the DSM in order to help psychologists have a standard or a guide. And I think we need that going forward. Uh, I would encourage folks who want to do this work 
and sort of, uh, I will echo my colleagues, uh, be the person that is approachable, that is people consider genuine, um, that people consider that has integrity and different things like that, but also being able to read the tea leaves um, of the institution or, or, or an organization. And I think that'll be helpful. All right, final thoughts in one sentence. Um, any recommendations or advice for working with your campus's ombuds? Um, Dee, I'm gonna start with you. Um, I'm just gonna to go to my tagline. It's better to know us and not need us than to need us and not know us. So feel free to, to reach out, investigate, see who we are, what we do. And as a matter of fact, we're, we're here and available for all. Awesome, perfect. Shannon. I think kind of similar, reach out to your ombuds office and get to know how they function at your institution and lean on them as a resource to understand the institution from a new lens. Um, they can give you perspective to issues and may be able to highlight systemic concerns they have seen for your area of which you were not aware. Awesome, awesome. Jennifer, not Shannon. <laughs> um, yeah, just um, I appreciate when organizations provide space to, to really know what people are saying about them. And so I would encourage um, student affairs professionals specifically to just embrace the work we're trying to do. It's not always doom and gloom. It's a really positive opportunity um, to make real impactful systems systematic changes in our organizations. Excellent. Well, I for sure learned a lot um, about your RL's role today, and I really appreciate your time um, here on Student Affairs Live. Uh, thank you to the three of us, three of you as panelists. Um, great work of our producers behind the scenes who address some technology issues um, as we were getting rolling today. And thanks as always to uh, Gabby Wallet, my graduate assistant, who managed our back channel and even inserted some pretty fun hashtags like Mary Poppins analogy um, <laughs> after the spoonful of sugar comment. Which which is great. Um, for those of you who watch regularly, uh, Student Affairs Live will be off the air during the month of December, but we'll be back in January. We are currently seeking a selection um, of topics. Uh, Keith Edwards, Tony Duty, and I um, usually host about one episode a month, so please email us or send us a tweet if you have ideas. Um, you can receive reminders about all of our future episodes as we get those underway by subscribing to the Higher Ed Live newsletter or browsing our archives at higheredlive.com. Um, again, I'm Heather Shea. Thanks again to everyone uh, who contributed to today's episode and particularly to my fabulous guests. Uh, and thanks to everyone who is watching. Have a great week.